Again, thank you. Please be seated. We are in a study of Peter's second letter. We just started last week, so you're not missing much if you're just catching up with us. We come now to 2 Peter chapter 1, and we will uh, read together the opening portion of this letter. We're going to be concentrating particularly on the faith, which is the ground and foundation of all that follows, mentioned twice in our opening passage. Here now from 2 Peter, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given to us rather exceedingly great and precious promises, so that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to kindness, brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let's pray once more together, shall we? Our Father in heaven, even as we have obtained such an op- a precious faith by your grace, so we need it to grow and to become the soil in which a number of other virtues grow. We confess that our faith, uh, far from being even like a mustard seed, is so often negligible in our lives that we have little thought and we desire to live and to walk by faith. And so we pray that you would increase that grace in us, that you would fulfill that work with faith and love, that we might be a people truly set apart, eager to bear fruit to God. And it's in Christ that we pray. Amen. Hidden among the many awful photographs of the First World War that have come down to us, you can find some surprising pictures of Gardens, yes, gardens, in the trenches and dugout shelters. You can see pictures of soldiers in their trenches flanked by their planting beds. And these were not mere victory gardens, as we called them in the previous war, symbols uh, that uh, we needed to grow food for potential times of scarcity to supplement a limited supply of nutrition. No, these were what one researcher called defiant gardens. Defiant gardens. Symbols of survival on the battlefield. 
symbols of life in the midst of the most difficult of all circumstances. And these gardens in the trenches of the First World War are not at all unusual. Such gardens were planted in Jewish ghettos and in German POW camps and in Japanese-American internment camps in our own country. Such gardens were planted by people living in the war-torn areas of Sarajevo. Not a matter of scarcity, but a, a matter of life, a symbol of life. And you can find the same gardens in modern conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, gardens that were to those who planted them much more than a source of food. Or as one author who researched them says, they are an obdurate refusal to give in to the horrors of the hell so close at hand. That's what they meant to those who planted them. Now, you and I are, in a very real sense, called to plant our own defiant gardens. That is to say, as followers of Christ, we are in a great conflict and we live in enemy territory. The world grows corrupt. The flesh betrays us. The devil, for his part, as it's written, goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And in such a hostile environment, we are called not only to fight the good fight of faith, but we are also called to bear fruit to God in keeping with righteousness. Over the next several weeks, we will be considering some of these precious fruits, the fruits of the Spirit, if you like, that Peter lists here, virtue, knowledge, self-control, and so forth. We are to grow and to mature such fruit to the glory and praise of God. But today, we're going to be considering the soil in which they all must grow, namely faith. Faith is foundational in this list and foundational to all the other fruits that we produce in the garden of our lives. Perhaps we should think of faith as a soil that nurtures the other fruit in our list. Verse 1, we have obtained such a precious faith, and now in this passage on Christian maturity, we're called to give all diligence to add certain things to our faith. Uh, those things may not be in any particular order as they are listed, uh, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and so forth. They don't seem to be in any particular order, but uh, faith at the beginning to which we are to add all these things and love at the end, which is the goal, do seem very intentionally to be set there. And uh, I would put it to you that here is where we must begin every other grace in the Christian life in the soil of faith. Now, faith, as you know, is something that can mean practically anything in today's world. It can mean simply optimism. Have faith is about the same to saying somebody, keep your chin up. Or faith can mean a certain kind of sentimentalism, a, a kind of wishful thinking. Um, most recent survey of the religious affiliations of Americans showed that fewer people now are affiliating with any particular faith or attending worship at a church or synagogue or mosque. Um, one liberal Protestant minister responding to this said that he's not worried by such a statistic because he said the vast majority of people of faith have chosen not to join a faith community, but rather, he thinks, 
They experience their spirituality through personal devotions and in the environment and book clubs and at the local coffee shops. Now, friends, if faith is what we share with the coffee-swilling, outdoor-loving, non-church-attending drinkers at Starbucks, the term has truly become meaningless in our society. And it's a Western conceit that we can gather together, say, Buddhists and Christians as both being people of faith. You have virtually eliminated any meaning in the word if you know anything about those religions. Something that can describe everything describes nothing in particular, and I say this because Christians always, but especially today, need to be sure that they understand the most important terms and to stick with their definitions and not allow them to be hijacked by a culture with a vested interest in blurring all distinctions between one thing and another. I'd like to consider with you today the soil of faith, and second, how it grows other things, and to close then, thirdly, how we can better prepare our soil for an abundant harvest of these virtues with godliness, joy, and assurance as they come to our lives. That'll be our outline for today. First, the, the soil of faith. The soil of faith. The word faith means many things in our cultures, as I mentioned. But even in the Bible, I must say, faith can take on various meanings. For instance, faith can sometimes refer to the truth that we believe, what we believe, so that when Jude, for instance, uh, speaks about the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, for which we must contend, there, the faith means uh, simply the truth that we believe, the things that we believe. So it can talk about the the objectives, if you like, but much of the time, including here, faith means uh, the subjective, it means believing, believing. as our shorter catechism summarizes, the grace by which we receive and rest upon Christ alone. That's the emphasis most places as here. Faith being an active dependence upon a present Christ. Clearly, it's how we must all begin the... Christian life, saved by faith, or as we read elsewhere, as Paul puts it, we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The the reason that faith is there said to be the instrument of God's grace, of our salvation, is because faith is, in its very nature, looking away from ourselves to God in Christ, receiving and resting upon him. It's therefore the contrary principle to works, not of works, it says. Or old Richard Hooker also said it nicely, God justifies the believing man not for the worthiness of his belief, but for the worthiness of him whom he believes. It's not your faith that saves you. It's your Savior whom we lay hold of by faith, receiving and resting upon him. And uh, if you think about it, there's also a certain logic to why we would be saved through faith. Like, why why of all things would we be saved through faith? Well, you remember it was 
by a lack of faith that we were lost. That is to say, the devil in the garden temptation began by making our parents distrust God and to reconsider the truth of God's word. And it's by the opposite act that we come back to him so that there is a certain symmetry in the Bible that it's by faith that we are then restored. Now, some people mistakenly think of faith as some kind of a magical power that if we could just work up enough of this remarkable feeling, whatever it is, then we could do anything, move mountains. If we could just feel enough of it. In their minds, faith is kind of like uh, the force in Star Wars. But that's not how faith works. It's not how the force works, as you all know. Uh, we, are, we are people of faith, and human beings are to live by faith. It's, it, it, it involves feeling, but it is, it is not the, the feeling that's so much in view. Um, we human beings, you and I, every day, live by faith. In, in whatever we do, everything that you do, uh, whether you are a Christian or not, you, you go to a doctor whose name you can't pronounce, he gives you a prescription that you cannot read. You take it to a pharmacist whom you have never seen, and he gives you a medication you do not understand, but somehow you swallow it three times a day. That's because you have good reason for trusting the whole conglomeration of things there. And so, you see, faith is not a blind leap in the dark, writes another. It's more like a sure step of a trusting child toward the loving arms of its mother. Faith is a confidence in God that he is there, writes one, that he cares, that he is faithful, that he intervenes and that he embraces us when we throw ourselves into his arms. A very, very well-founded belief. But um, when we try to make definitions of faith, it's, we found it notoriously difficult to try to say everything. And, and, and part of the reason why is because the Bible itself offers little in the way of definition. You notice that most of the time it opts for illustration. That is to say, it describes the nature of faith in uh, a kind of picture. Um, and this was a real breakthrough for me as I struggled at one point, and then I read in one of my favorite authors of old, R.C. Uh, sorry, uh, J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite old authors, he, he pointed out to me, and, and I've shared this before, but it was so helpful to me, and there are many people here who weren't there uh, Sunday night uh, a couple years ago when I opened this up, so if this sounds familiar, please indulge me as I open this up again. R Ryle wrote that in, in biblical terminology and thought, faith is the hand by which we lay hold of Christ, the eye by which we look to him, the mouth by which we feed on him, and the foot by which we run to him. That faith becomes the hand, the eye, the mouth, and the foot of the soul. In other words, the means by which the soul betakes itself of Jesus Christ and unites itself to Jesus Christ. And so typically we read uh, in the original not so much of believing in Christ 
as believing into Christ, an interesting turn of phrase that isn't found elsewhere, that to open this up to you, faith is said to be looking to Christ, as Warren read earlier. We not only run our race looking unto Jesus, as the book of Hebrews says, to illustrate faith, Jesus himself hearkens back to that bronze serpent that Moses made and those rebellious, sinful Israelites who had been bitten by snakes, they had to look at that serpent, the symbol of their suffering, to be saved from their deadly venom. Can you see yourself looking up from your life of sin, up, up, up to Jesus to save you, to his cross and now in heaven interceding? That is faith. Or faith is at other times called receiving Jesus, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, we prayed earlier from Colossians. Um, It's like opening a door and welcoming Jesus Christ into your home to dwell. Can you see Christ walking through the door of your life? That's faith. Or faith is illustrated as putting on Christ as though he were a garment. Paul tells the Galatians, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, like you're wearing Christ from head to toe wherever you go. His righteousness is upon you. He is your livery of your uniform. Can you see yourself putting on Christ wherever you go? That's faith. Or faith is elsewhere described as laying hold of Christ. As I mentioned, we read in Hebrews that believers have fled for refuge to Christ and have laid hold of him or holds fast to him. Um, At the beginning, like the ancient Jew who fled for sanctuary to lay hold of the horns of the altar by which his life would be delivered. Or like a drowning man today who's laying hold of the hand of a man from the lifeboat. Can you see yourself gripping your hand on the Lord's and more importantly, I think, his hand on yours, unwilling ever to let, to let go that this is your life? That's faith. Or faith is compared to eating and drinking Christ, being sustained in your day moment by moment. This is what we celebrate, of course, in the Lord's Supper, that our lives depend upon him, just as our body depends for life on food and drink, so we depend upon Jesus. He, he spoke himself uh, this way, saying, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. That coming to him and believing in him are like eating and drinking him. And if you are thirsty for life today, dear friends, then you are to follow his directions. Come to me and drink you will have living water in abundance, overflowing water of life. Uh, Can you think of Jesus as the food and the drink that sustains you, that makes up you? That is faith. Or finally, although we could go on, faith is compared to committing ourselves to Christ. Uh, Paul says that he is able to keep that which we have committed to him until that day. That is to say, we are, as it were, 
placing our souls, our lives, our eternal future in His hands, knowing that He can guard them and preserve them and will bring them at last to heaven. Can you see yourself, as it were, committing yourself, handing yourself, your life, your future over to the Lord Jesus for Him to take and to keep, asking Him to uh, keep that which you've committed to Him until that day. That is faith. And so we are, in so many ways, given these very vivid illustrations in various words of the practical dynamic of faith. I, I, I labor this point because so often in America, at least, we, we think of faith as an intellectual uh, conviction or pursuit. And, well, as I said at the beginning, faith sometimes just means the content of our faith, and it always, always includes uh, the, the things that we believe, it is that, to be sure. And that is why it derives its power. It is so powerful because what we are believing, the doctrines that we hold, the, the, the things that we are trusting in, are the greatest things that have ever been. Um, that is to say, the content of these things specifically, is that well, Jesus has come into the world. God has become man to deliver us. He has died for our sins. He has risen for our justification. He is reconciling and recreating us and bringing us home to God. In other words, the things that we are, as it were, drinking and committing ourselves to and laying hold of and putting on and receiving and embracing are the most stupendous things that have ever happened in the history of the world, the greatest things that have ever occupied the mind or stirred the heart of man. The greatest things. And that is why believing in Jesus Christ so transforms everything. Our loves and our hatreds, our convictions and our practices, and therefore our lives root and branch. Because faith uh, amounts to uniting our minds and hearts and lives with his, our purpose with his, our loves with his, our desires with his. By faith, we therefore are called his brethren, his servants, his soldiers, his subjects, the children of his heavenly Father. So if you have this, it, it by definition controls you. Our entire lives, therefore, are redefined, redirected, and indeed it says recreated because of the faith by which we ultimately are receiving and resting upon Jesus, the Son of God himself. And that is why we can't simply think that faith is the same thing that every other religion has also when we have a very particular definition and a very particular illustration of that in the Bible. So, point one, this is why Faith is the soil in which everything else must grow. We're saved by faith. We walk by faith. It's the foundation of everything else. It's the ground in which we are rooted because ultimately it's a way of saying that we are rooted and grounded in Christ and that we're walking in Christ. We're saved in Christ. Faith, the instrument by which we lay hold of him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel and so live. Well, the second question then, how does it cause other things to grow? Uh, I said this is the foundation. I said this is the soil. Um, how does that work? Does the name Otis 
Sound familiar to you? It should, and not just if you're a fan of The Andy Griffith Show, or Otis Redding, or even Otis Allen Claysbrook. Uh, Otis, Otis should ring a bell because you've undoubtedly been on his elevator, the elevator that bears his name. Otis elevators have been the industry standard for more than 150 years. Old Elisha Otis was a famous inventor. No, he did not invent the elevator. He invented the braking system on the elevator that ensured its safety. Um, you see, in his day, uh, most elevators were little more than open platforms. And uh, you know, the pa people panicked as newspapers would report serious injuries or worse when a cable broke or there was some other failure. And even when Otis had invented his now famous braking system for elevators, Elisha Otis still had great trouble selling his elevators until 1854 when he came up with a very creative sales pitch at the Crystal Palace Exhibition in Manhattan, which was almost the World's Fair of that day. Every hour at that exposition, Otis would step into his machine in front of a great crowd. And it would begin to work, and then he gave the order to his assistant to cut the rope. The crowd held its breath, and the brake immediately kicked in, and the elevator stopped, and Otis announced, all is safe, gentlemen, all is safe. And with this demonstration, Otis suddenly took over the elevator market. <laughs> Uh, and today, New York City alone has about 70,000 Otis elevators. It's estimated that the equivalent of the whole world's population travels on an Otis elevator, escalator, or moving walkway about every three days. Uh, some of us, every day, entrust our lives, I don't think it's too much to say, entrust our lives to Elisha Otis's work every day. Well, you see, by analogy, faith is not only receiving but resting upon Christ for salvation and for daily life as well, that our every step, as it were, is supported and is grounded in Him. Peter follows the familiar pattern in this letter that we find throughout Scripture, that the gospel order is this, salvation by faith comes first, and then we read, the base, this is, becomes the basis on which we are to live and act. Uh, it's more compressed here, but you know how Paul dramatically drags it out in several places, for instance, in the letter to the Ephesians, in which the whole first half of the letter, chapters 1 through 3, gives us nothing to do. There is not a single command in the first three chapters of that six-chapter letter, except that one command that we should remember what we once were in order that we might know what God has done and let, put our faith in Him. And then there's the word, therefore, and then in chapters 4 through 6, well, that is applied in every sphere of life. And the salvation we have received becomes the basis then of all that we are to do. Faith becomes the basis of all works, if you like. Similarly here, as the letter begins, and it's a practical letter, so the, uh, the uh, matter is not even uh, like it is in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, but we have here in verse 1, um, the letter addressed to those who have obtained 
like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And in verse 3, the uh, opening of the letter in earnest, his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's the indicative. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, in which we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises, so that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. This is all that God has done in a word. And so, therefore, in verse 5, it is for this very reason that we are to give all diligence to add to our faith, that precious faith we've received, uh, certain, certain virtues. In, in light of such exceedingly great and precious promises, in light of such divine power, in light of our union with Jesus Christ, we are therefore to walk in the following way, adding to our faith certain things. So Martin Luther, I think, has a wonderful explanation of this where he explains, quote, faith is not the human notion and dream that some people call faith. Someone says, I believe, and they take this to be a true faith. But as it is a human figment and an idea that never reaches the depth of the heart, nothing comes of it either, and no improvement follows. Faith, however, is a divine work in us which changes us and makes us to be born anew of God, John 1. It kills the old Adam and makes us altogether different men in heart and spirit and mind and powers, and it brings with it the Holy Spirit, Oh, he says, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good works incessantly. It doesn't ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done them and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes around and looks for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. Faith, he writes, is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that the believer would stake his life on it a thousand times. This knowledge of and confidence in God's grace makes men glad and bold and happy in dealing with God and with all creatures. And this is the work which the Holy Spirit performs in faith. Because of it, without compulsion, a person is ready and glad to do good to everyone, to serve everyone, to suffer everything, out of love and praise to God who has shown him this grace of faith. Thus it is impossible to separate works from faith just as it is impossible to separate heat and light from fire. Beware, therefore, of your own false notions and of the idle talkers who imagine themselves wise enough to make decisions about faith and good works and yet are the greatest fools. Pray God that he may work faith in you. Otherwise, you will surely remain forever without faith regardless of what you may think or do. 
All that, by the way, found in uh, the Luther Bible and the preference to his letter to the Romans. Um, quite an entrance to the letter of Romans, don't you think? Faith, you see, is the great motivating factor for everything that we choose to do. Everything. You, you're, you get a drink of water because you believe it will quench your thirst. You get in a car because you believe it'll get you to where you want to go. Even your emotions are beholden to faith. You fear because you expect that something bad, you believe that something bad will happen. You, you feel encouragement because you believe something good is going to come. Everything that you say or feel or do comes from what you believe to be true. And this faith that we have been given in God often therefore means believing something in advance that will only make sense later in retrospect. It means believing something now that's only going to make sense later, that you can't always see the beginning and the end. That's where that Hebrews 11 passage comes from, the uh, evidence of things not seen and so forth. But faith is the great motivating engine of all of life. And this is very good news for us, brothers and sisters, us who have received such a precious faith, as he puts it. Because, dear brothers and sisters, there are mountains that the world cannot move, where there is no hope and no help but faith can. Faith can. And some of us are testaments to some of those impossibilities. As another writer puts it, you give me a passionate man, a hot-headed man, and one that is headstrong and unmanageable, and with faith as a grain of mustard seed, I will by degrees make that man as quiet as a lamb. You give me a covetous man, an avaricious man, a miserly man, and with a little faith working like leaven in his heart, I will yet make him a perfect spendthrift for the church of Christ and for the poor. And then give me one who is mortally afraid of pain, and one who all his days is in bondage through fear of death, and let the spirit of faith once enter and take its seat in his heart and his imagination, and he shall in a short time despise all your crosses and flames." Then show me a man with an unclean heart, and I will undertake by his faith in Christ to make him whiter than snow, so that he will not know himself to be the same man. We read in the Bible, and we've heard many times about how faith, even as small as a mustard seed, can move mountains. And people misunderstand. Nothing is possible to, to those who believe, Jesus explains. And they say, oh, that if I can only work myself up to a certain feeling, I can bend God's will to do something impossible for me. That's what it must mean. That's how people get confused. They read about faith as small as a mustard seed moving mountains and Jesus saying nothing is impossible for him who believes. And they say, okay, I'm going to work myself up and bend God's will to me. But such promises are not talking about bending God's will to you, are doing something for you 
the Lord himself, remember, prays, not as I will, but as you will. The, the point of faith moving mountains is to say that through faith, the impossible takes place in the world. And it's not about him bending, uh, us bending his will to ours, but our, us bending our will to his. Do you see? Uniting our will, our mind, our, ho- our thoughts, our loves, our hopes, because we are so joined to Christ. And as we are bending to His, what happens when we are full of such change, which faith brings upon us, is that we become an awful weapon in God's hands for the most unlikely things to happen in this world, you see. This is not theoretical the people to whom Peter wrote. Things in the ancient world that, that they were astonished at, that they had never seen. Self-control, um, sexual continence, self-control in such a wicked, perverse society. Philosophers had written that that's not possible. Perseverance, as people were persecuted in the flames and with the beasts to death, Self-control, perseverance, godliness. People that had been the most wicked men in society, in the world. Completely changed. Brotherly kindness, another thing that's listed here. Brotherly kindness. You have to understand that as far as scholars know, that word, Philadelphia, had never, ever been used of anyone but family members, of all the writings of the ancient world. But brotherly love became a standard thing in the church. Love in that cold world issued forth. Mountains moved. The greatest of changes, not because people bent God's will to theirs by working up a feeling, but because by faith, Nothing was impossible as they bent their wills to his. So you see how practical it is. How faith is a soil that causes other things to grow. For it unites us to the power, the promises, and the person of Christ who is without limit. And nothing is impossible for the Lord. And as we'll see, the greatest of changes took place. Self-control perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. Such things the world had never seen began with faith. Now I'd like to start to conclude with a brief exhortation. Preparing the soil, our need to grow in faith. Our need to grow in faith. I'd like to begin here, this final point here, by contrasting faith versus decisionism. Faith versus decisionism. By decisionism, I mean the particularly common practice in America, calling people to place their hope and confidence in a decision in the past, rather than what we've been talking about, a lively faith that unites us to Christ right now. Maybe somebody told you 
um, in uh, evangelistic meeting of some sort, leading you in a prayer, and then saying to you, you know, if you prayed that prayer and really meant it, if you really meant it, then, then you're saved. And don't ever doubt that, maybe they added. And you walked away thinking you got saved by praying a prayer and really meaning it. Again, working up that feeling of faith at that moment. And then years later, when you look at the wreck of your life and you have doubts, what do you do? Well, the natural thing is to think back to that prayer and say, did I really, really mean it? And, and, and then somehow all of your security and your assurance, which is described here in the passage, is all hanging on how much you meant something that you felt and therefore said so many years ago. And faith, then, by which we are saved, becomes the decision of a faraway moment. And, and not the life-giving sustenance of a lifetime. Jesus speaks in that parable of the four soils about believing for a time. Did you know that? Believing for a time. What we are talking about, as Luther said again, is a sure and steadfast looking to Christ. Sure and steadfast. And if that's what it is, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, then we have to confess that so often, at any particular time, our faith is as small as a mustard seed if virtually gone from our sight. In practice, too often by far, we are unbelievers, believers that we are, notwithstanding, not even considering the great things that we've been talking about today. I, I mean practically to ask you, how much faith do you put in Jesus in a day? How present to your mind is the knowledge of what he's told you? How convinced are you of what he said? How much weight do you place in what he's promised? Do you live your life moment by moment in the conscious presence of his divine majesty and of his love? Is there a spring in your step? And is there a thrill in your heart day after day because of the unsearchable riches of Christ's grace to you? How utterly wonderful, brothers and sisters, how utterly different our lives and hearts and days would be if only we had a little faith. The fact is, we have very, very little faith most of the time. And you and I are Christians. I say you and I would scarcely recognize ourselves if we lived by faith day by day. You understand. And even keeping God's commandments, that's not the hard part of Christianity. If you, if you have sufficient faith, the obedience naturally follows because it's the motivating factor. The hard work of Christianity is to offer to Christ a genuine, strong, steady faith. Faith is not an easy thing or a simple thing. It is the most difficult and demanding thing there is. To live in the absolute confidence of the presence, the word, the promise, the power of an unseen God. But as I say, this is what makes all the difference. And, and that is why ultimately, of course, we read elsewhere, it, it must be a divine gift. It's, it's the most impossible and likely thing in the world. But faith is, therefore, what makes all the difference. It's the great remedy against all the discouragement of the soul. It's why it's written that the righteous shall live by faith. 
And this is one of our great modern challenges in the world today, is more and more in this sphere, in that sphere, in the other sphere, faith, faith is out. We're, we're called more and more to leave faith at church, or at least at home, and to live more and more with no conscious reference to faith in the rest of life. That doesn't belong here, they say. That doesn't belong there. That doesn't belong there. And what I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is it belongs everywhere, every moment of the day. And that God is calling you to believe, to believe in Him, His promises, His power, and especially His Son with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is the great engine. This is what will make all the difference in all the other virtues. Do you see? If it's divine gift, then we must pray. And if it is that to which we are to fan into flame, then fan we must. And if it is that conscious dependence upon the present Christ that it is, then so it must be every part of our life and day. And so I close to illustrate with a prayer by Hudson Taylor, a prayer by this celebrated missionary to China, a prayer that he used to recite every day. In fact, the only one that he would recite every day, that he would say every day, no matter what else would come or what he would ask. But this was his great desire. Lord Jesus, make thyself to me a bright, living reality excuse me, a living, bright reality, more present to faith's vision keen than any outward object seen, more dear, more intimately nigh than Eden, the sweetest earthly tie. The secret to a great man. Let us pray. O Lord, we likewise confess that our faith, well, a mustard seed is generous to describe how we need, O oh Lord, you to make yourself to us, that living bright reality more present to faith's vision than any outward object seen. Increase our faith, even as they said of old. We pray that by the fruit of your Holy Spirit working in us, that we should not only have this ground, but then with it, to be able abundantly to bring forth such a variety and such an assortment of fruits unto you that your name should be glorified, that our lives should be filled with new joy and power, that beginning here there would be no end. No end to our wonder, love, and praise in our Lord Jesus.